The rest of you can turn to, to Mark chapter 12. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 38 this morning. And so this is the last one in Mark chapter 12. I think I've had like a bunch of sermons in Mark chapter 12. Um, here we are. I also want to point out that that anthem, that was a Rich Mullins song. Rich Mullins is, is my favorite Christian artist, and that was one of the last songs he ever wrote, and it never got properly recorded. There's only a demo version of that exists, so and what we heard today was, was awesome. Thank you, guys. Okay, Mark chapter 12, uh, starting at verse 38, uh, Jesus has been sparring with scribes and Pharisees and Herodians and all kind of all the enemies at once. Have gathered around, and now that they kind of took a shot at Jesus, and Jesus has uh, has deflected it, and so now he's kind of on the attack. Uh, there's there's like these two stories: what Jesus says about the scribes in verse thirty eight, and then what he says about the the widow in this very famous story of the widow's might. Uh, they're linked uh, in, in a theme that goes kind of all the way back to what the the scribes talked about. Or the, the answer that Jesus gave to the enthusiastic scribe uh, as he had the question about which was the greatest commandment. And so let's just know that there's, some, there's a connection here uh, between these two passages that even though your Bible kind of divides them up, probably um, that's where we are. So I, I looked up um, the, the largest single charitable donations for 2020. 2020 was a weird year. And so that actually this is pretty interesting kind of the way this broke out. These are, this isn't all of the money that these people gave for that year, but this was the, the largest single chunks of money that, that these folks gave in 2020 uh, to charitable donation. And so I'll just kind of run through the, the five, the top five. Um, coming in at number five was Mark Zuckerberg, who was worth uh, about a hundred billion, and he gave a single gift of 250 million. So not not too shabby. I don't know what else he gave, but like one chunk, some something got 250 million. Fred Coomer, uh, I don't know. A lot of these people, I don't know who they are. Um, Fred Coomer gave 300 million to someone or something. Phil and Penny Knight gave. They they have the number three and number two slots. They gave one gift worth 300 million and another gift worth 900 million, which that's uh, nothing to sneeze at. But then, number one uh, in 2020 charitable single single charitable contributions now, one time gift. Jeff Bezos gave. Uh, this is right. He's worth he's worth like 186 billion, I think. He gave a single gift of 10 billion dollars. Like that's just like one check that he wrote for 10 billion dollars. Now he wrote it to his own foundation, so like, <laughs> there you go. Um, but that's nothing. Is, is, no, it's Elon Musk that hosted Saturday Night Live last night. Never mind. All right. So like, these are all very generous, like very generous gifts to a, a wide array of, of causes, and these gifts are to be applauded. So don't like, don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, and these people, and I think these people will all notice the lack of funds, right? Um, they, it won't hurt them. None of them will really miss the money. But what are they doing? They're giving out of their super abundance. Like abundance that, that we cannot 
like those numbers don't make sense to us. It might as well be like a bajillion dollars, right? Just some made up uh, amount of money, right? And then there's the other side of me that when I read this and thought about this, the, the cynic side of me said, you know, they, they're getting something in return. Like, this is not pure altruism going on here, uh, because I'm a mean person. Um, it, like, good press or some kind of virtue signaling, uh, which is one of my new favorite words, pats on the back and standing in certain circles, you know, tax rates, you know, that sort of thing that's kind of the cynical side of me that kind of goes there, right? Here's the point. Nothing reveals our hearts more than uh, what we do with our money or our giving, right? So much so that we have this saying in our culture, like, put your money where your mouth is, right? Meaning, like, what you do needs to match up with what you say you believe. And so... Here, here Jesus is, is contrasting two things in these two accounts. Jesus is contrasting the scribes and their sort of religion of outward appearances with, with this modest gift of this widow. Like to say this widow's gift is modest is, is almost like blowing up the proportion of the gift, right? It's more than modest or less than modest, whichever one it would be, right? It is this, this tiny, tiny, literally a pittance. But Jesus calls his people to love God with all that they are and withhold nothing from him so that there's no area, there's no facet, there's no compartment, there's no... Like part of your life that is that is escaping the the, the gaze or the, the rule of King Jesus in it. So as we look at this passage, let's let's look at this in two ways, and it breaks down pretty nicely. Let's look at the might of the scribes, and then the widow's might. So the might of the scribes and the widow's might. But first, let's read Mark chapter twelve, starting in verse thirty-eight. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, from the the sixth to the ninth grade, uh, I went to Snowden schools the, in the in the city school system, which is now the county school system, and that just blows my mind somewhat. But like, I went to Snowden School, and Snowden is at the corner of North Parkway and McLean in Midtown. And on the opposite corner of of North Parkway and McLean is the zoo, the city zoo. And so we were literally right across the street from the zoo. In fact, uh, we were we were in the zoo the other day as a family, and we could look up at one point, and I could see where I had sixth grade math up on the third floor of Snowden School uh, with Miss Graham, um, bless her. Um, but like in that, so that was like the late 80s. We didn't have any air conditioning in the school at the time. And so we had those windows open all the time. And we could, we were getting the full, almost the full zoo experience almost every day. Um, like the, not so much the sights, but the smells, but, and especially the sounds. And that's what I remember a lot about the zoo, because at that point they had these howler monkeys that were in this cage outside the, the cat cow, the lion, like where the lions were, and like they would start going crazy with these funny monkey sounds, and then, but there were also, now we could hear all of that, uh, but there were also peacocks that just used to roam around the zoo, right? Just these giant blue, long necked, plumagey peacocks. And like we know a lot about people, we know mostly like what they what they look like, right? When their tail feathers are all extended and everything. But have you ever heard a peacock? Like those dudes are loud. And you can hear them from miles and miles away. And we could hear these peacocks, right? Strutting around. And you could you didn't even have to see if you could you could just the sound of the peacocks just brought the image to mind, right? Well, they are the scribes. <laughs> they are the religious peacocks of the day, right? They're, they were the chief biblical scholars, the professors, the teachers, the rabbis, the exegetes, the biblical. Like they knew it all. They were the, because the, the law was, the, in the Bible was actually the law. They were the lawyers of the day, right? They were the chief interpreters of scripture for the nation of Israel. And in verses 35 through 37, Jesus is dealing with them, as we looked last week, on the grounds of how they interpret Scripture regarding who the Messiah is. Well, how can they say that he's the son of David when he's also the son of God? Like, they were missing this whole important facet of who the Messiah was. And, and, and here he is uh, talking about them because they love to show off. They love to receive attention. They love to, to sound their own peacock call uh, as they as they walked about and did did their biz, their business in the in the city and town or wherever they were. Right. So in verse thirty eight and thirty nine, Jesus said, "Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts." So like, they had these prayer shawls. They wore these, these special prayer robes. And, and the, the scribes' prayer robes were so long. They had such elaborate tassels on them that they reached all the way to the ground. And then when they would go into a public space, like a marketplace or, or somewhere, they, they would expect people to stand for them. And the only, the only people who didn't stop what they were doing and acknowledge the presence of this, 
this most important person as they, they traipsed through the marketplace were merchants who were actually in the middle of conducting business, right? Everybody else stopped and sort of gave a nod of respect or stood if they were sitting or they loved this. They ate it up. And in the, the synagogue, which was basically like the Jewish church of the day, uh, most of the people sat in the middle of the room, sort of on, on the floor, but around the edge of the, the room, there were these benches. And if you remember what it was like to sit in bleachers at ECS, right? No backs. So if you're sitting on the, on the floor in the synagogue, you don't have a back to lean against. But the scribes were like the people who walked all the way up to the top of the bleachers and took the, took the back row so they could lean against the wall back there. And so, but these were seats of honor, right? And everyone expected them to do this. They, it became an entitlement type thing, right? It was, it was fashionable also the, to have a scribe or two kind of at your feast, and most wealthy people were patrons of, of the scribes, right? The, the scribes were kind of like the minister that Woodrow Wilson once described as being the only man who he knew who could strut while sitting down, right? <laughs> Matthew 23, Jesus kind of says a little bit more about them. He says, they do all the deeds to be seen by others. The might of the scribes was founded upon impressing other people with external deeds. That was their strength. That was their authority. That's where they, they got this deference and respect. Theirs was an empty religion of, of cultural advantage. Because at some point, and in some way, there was a captivity going on, a captivity to the culture that, that they, were, they were stuck in. The scribes were also religious parasites. Verse 40. He says, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. They made their living off the donations of others. And, and sure, there were plenty of rich patrons that the scribes had, but there were also lots of poor people who would give away large sums of money, money that they didn't have and couldn't afford to support scribes. Scribes were forbidden from accepting money directly for doing their work, but they could accept these charitable contributions, right? And so giving to the, a scribe was considered a good work, something meritorious that you could do to earn God's favor, to earn righteousness for yourself. And they often took money from people of very limited means. Think TV evangelists and prosperity gospel preachers of today. That's kind of the, the sort of bilking and taking advantage of that, that Jesus is referring to. Scribes were held up by others and held themselves up by as being great authorities and role models. They were looked up to by the culture. And they and their culture were, were completely blind to their hypocrisy. The religious suit that they moved around in and lived in and worked in and, and, and exercised their authority in was completely blind to the hypocrisy of the scribes. Beware of the cultural blindness of the scribes. There's an entire semi-religious cottage industry out there based on outrage at the culture. That kind of outrage isn't what isn't really what is meant by, by cultural blindness. Because if you are if you're concerned about the church and, and drifting one way or that way, or you're concerned about the culture drifting one way or that way, 
then you're not blind to it, right? If you're concerned about it, you're aware of it. And I'm not saying there's no reason to be concerned. And I'm not saying don't engage in in, uh, truth-telling in the culture. Don't engage. I'm not saying to not engage the culture with your biblical world and life view. Of course, we're called to do that. We're called to be salt. We're called to be light, right? But I am saying that the necessary ingredients to your biblical world and life view with which you go out and engage the culture has to be a deep searching repentance on your part. The questions we need to ask ourselves are, how do I drift away? How do I drift away from obedience to God and his word and and don't even know it? Where are my blind spots? Trust me, if they are blind spots, you don't know that you have them. I don't, I don't often talk about my own vision issues very much. Um, in fact, this July, it'll be three years since I've last driven a car. Most people forget that I, I have vision issues because I have a whole lot of very useful straight ahead vision that just makes it very easy for me to live and get around and do the things that I need to do. But I have zero peripheral vision, none whatsoever. And I, I really, I do, I forget. I forget that I really only see less than half of what uh, other people see. And so if you've ever offered me your hand to shake um, and I totally ignored it, sorry, um, I didn't see it. But my subconscious brain fills in the peripheral vision for me so that it really does feel like, you know, I have a good full field of vision. But uh, if I spend all my time kind of outraged at the blind spots of other Christians or the culture at large, and, and I'm distracted from examining my own heart for my own blind spot, it's, it's, it's kind of the principle of the log in your eye versus the speck in someone else's eye. What would home life be if we spent less time outraged at others in wartime in deep searching repentance. What would your marriage be like? What would your career be like? If you were humbled and if we were humbled by the work of deep searching repentance, would you would you be a better listener to the hurts of others? If if we were humbled by the work of deep searching repentance, would you be a more patient parent? If you were humbled by the work of deep searching repentance, would you be a better serving neighbor? If you were humbled by the work of deep searching repentance, would you be a better prayer? Jesus is calling you to to be aware and to beware of the arrogant might of the Pharisees. He's the very one who makes deep searching repentance on the part of those who know him and follow him safe. There is no activity more safe for his people than to approach Jesus in a posture of deep searching repentance. Dane Ortland, in his awesome book, Gentle and Lowly, that, that I recommend, I'm in the middle of it, uh, but so far it's awesome says this, he kind of gives this comparison, kind of draws this picture for us. 
He says a compassionate doctor has traveled deep into a remote area to help a people with no access or knowledge of medical care that are afflicted with a contagious disease. He's had his medical equipment flown in, he's correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But he seeks to provide care to the afflicted. The afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. But finally, a few brave men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. The heart of Jesus opens to receive sinners. The heart of Jesus experiences joy. The heart of Jesus experiences celebration when we come to Him in deep, searching repentance, asking Him by the power of His Spirit to uncover the secret sin in our lives, sin that we're not even aware of, blind spots that we don't even know that we have. That fills the Savior's heart with joy. It says, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. That joy is knowing that He is providing for His people the very thing that they need at the deepest, most fundamental level of their brokenness in humanity. Deep, searching repentance. There is no safer way to approach Jesus. There is no better posture to come to the Lord. The might of the fair, or the might of the scribes, now the widow's might. Verses 41 and 44, he said, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. So here's Jesus in the temple. He's in the part of the temple known as the court of the women. It's where, where everybody, both men and women, have access to, to go in to the temple. Uh, and as you know, the further into the temple, the more exclusive the, the places became. And so, but here's one where, where all, all followers of God, all people of, of God's nation of Israel could, could come and have access to. And so this is where the treasury was. And the treasury were these great big brass uh, chests where people would pour in money. And Jesus is watching the people. It is, it's the middle of the Passover, right? Remember, this is, this is Holy Week and Jesus is watching people. And so it's full of people and lots of people are approaching these large brass chests. And there were 13 of them, each for different, for different reasons. And they were shaped like giant upside down trumpets. They were narrow at the top and, and wide at the bottom. And, and, and many people are dropping in money. And this is one of those pictures that is not just visual, but is also auditory. Like you have to you have to hear the sound of these metal coins clinking and rattling down into these giant brass uh, trumpet-like chests, right? You have to hear them as they do this. And, and many of the people, it says, are very wealthy, and their coins make this huge racket as they pour down into the treasury chest. And perhaps some people have brought so much money to give at the Passover that they have to have servants carry it in for them in these great chests. And, and people are standing by with approving looks and nods and as the, the, the gifts are being made. And at no point does Mark or Jesus disapprove of the large sums being, being given. Uh, but he does contrast that with 
that he, he contrasts this, this activity, which is laudable, right, with that which is truly beautiful. And the giving of the tithes to the temple in obedience to God is good. But what this widow does is beautiful. Verse 42 says, And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which made a penny. Think back to earlier in Mark chapter 12 where Jesus answers the question of the scribe, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives this answer. He says, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This widow is living this commandment out. She gave these two, these two small coins, these two tiny coins that she could have easily held onto one and she would have had you know, something, right? My mom has, has a necklace that actually has one of these small coins in it. Uh, and it's a very tiny thing. She picked it up in her travels somewhere. But, but one of the, the total amount that the widow gave these two small coins was worth about one thirty-second of a denarius, which was a total day's wages for a workman at the time, right? And so here's the math that I did, and I think I did this right. If I did this math wrong, don't tell me because I don't care. But this makes my point. Um, like if you think of like a 12-hour workday, right, and a denarius being like the amount of money you get for a 12-hour workday, these two coins were enough to pay an average worker for 22 minutes and 30 seconds of work. That's how little this was in terms of worldly value. And in the middle of this spectacle of wealth and abundance being offered, I think one of the only people in the court of the women on that day who did not want to be seen putting their gift into the treasury was this woman. There was nothing to see. Widows were among the poorest and most vulnerable in society. She wore special clothes that marked her as a widow. Everybody knew she was a widow. And the sound of her two coins was, was non-existent in compared to the, the clattering and clanking of, of the hundreds of other coins going in. The coin is about the size of your pinky nail. The court of the women of this grand temple, on that day, Jesus saw the most beautiful sight there was to behold. And it wasn't, it wasn't the gold leaf and jewel-encrusted columns of the temple it wasn't, it wasn't the religious toy boy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the priests at the height of the, the religious year during Passover. It wasn't showy prayers or showy church clothes. Verse 43, And he called his disciples to them and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. She saw, he saw in that place, on that day, the, the beautiful, radiant sight of 
of a heart that was totally and completely given to her Lord with no reservations, no qualifications. Like she didn't announce to anybody, hey guys, this is all I've got. I don't have any more money. I'm going to put it in a treasury box right now. Jesus, Jesus knew that. He was the only one that knew that. And he knew it because he was God, right? But what he saw wasn't the outward activity of what the woman did, but the inward activity of her, her no-holds-barred giving herself in trust to her Heavenly Father. He saw a heart that was full of need and dependence. And his heart opened to it. He saw an offering it tiny in proportion to everything else that was being given, but which was far more useful because of the heart from which it was given, right? For, for 2,000 years, the Lord has been multiplying that tiny sum using it in the hearts of his people to produce the fruit of humility, to produce the fruit of generosity, to illustrate what true dependence upon him looks like. Jesus does not want our money. He wants us. He wants you. He wants all of you. He wants all of all of us, every part of everything we are. The widow gave him all of her money because she had already given him all of everything else that she was. He can be trusted. Look around you. Look at this room. Look at the last 18 months. You may not have the answers to all of your questions, but you have at least some evidence that he can be trusted. That he has, he has in many ways stripped us to the studs so that we might understand our dependence upon him. We're a mess. You're a mess. I'm a mess. Our hearts are breaking. We need Jesus. We can trust him. If we can trust him with four walls and the right number of roofs for our church house, we can trust him with everything else. His heart is open to those who understand and know and recognize their dependence upon him. As we come to this table, we don't come to this table from a position of strength or showiness or religious outward external signs and wonders. We come to this table recognizing the one who set it in place for his needy people. We come to this table with our need, not our might. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your goodness and mercy to us. We thank you for your 
wonderful provision to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his heart that that longs for needy people to come to him. We thank you for his heart that is open to those who recognize their sinfulness, their brokenness, who come to him with it in a posture of deep searching repentance. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel that bids us to come, for the good news that has been proclaimed to us, that, that lets us know that, that our God loves us and is for us and, and has made a way by which we might be reconciled to him. Heavenly Father, as we approach this table this morning, we pray that you would meet us here by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we partake of these elements this morning, you would nourish us, equip us, and encourage us in him. And we pray in Jesus' name.